Almighty God, we thank you for your word that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray that as we study, as we learn from, as we read and contemplate and meditate on the Word of God this morning, that you would shape us, continue your work of shaping us into being more and more lovers of you and the things of God. I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in thy sight, my rock and my redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Mark 12, 1 through 17, I'll be reading out of the ESV. You can, of course, follow along with me in your Bibles, in your bulletin, or on the screens that'll be put up right now. There we go. All right, so please follow along with me as I read. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true. Do not care about anybody's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. What type of stories capture your imagination? In last week's sermon, Jeff rightly noted that we're all captivated by stories of various sorts. That's been true throughout history, and it remains true today. So what are some of the stories that captivate you? Or in the language of our text, what are some of the stories that you marvel at? I'll admit that in my younger and more vulnerable years, and admittedly this is still somewhat true, I've always been captivated by fictional stories, whether in literature or in film, stories of revenge. Among my favorite movies based on a book is The Count of Monte Cristo, which is essentially a story of a man, Edmond Dantes, who is betrayed by some of the people closest to him and imprisoned for many years on this island fortress before he finally escapes to enact cold and calculated revenge on each party that wronged him many years prior. But The Count of Monte Cristo is far from the only story in this genre. There are countless popular stories of revenge or reversal that we could all think of where the oppressed and innocent maneuvers his or her way, sometimes sinisterly and sometimes innocently, to be in the eventual position of superiority over their original oppressors. Cinderella is even one example of that. 
And by the end of these stories, if you're anything like me, I bet most of us are intuitively satisfied that justice was done, innocence was dramatically avenged, and all wrongs were righted. Perhaps these are even some of the stories that we hold on to and fantasize about for ourselves whenever we're wronged. Now, I share this as a lead into our text this morning, not because I'm suggesting that Jesus is simply telling us another revenge story, because he's decidedly not. He's telling us a story ultimately of God's righteous judgment, of God's unsurpassable mercy and patience, and God's covenant love for his people. Instead, the reason I share this as a lead into our text is because when we really understand the story that Jesus is telling in this text, specifically the parable, I think we'll find something much more satisfying and something much more appropriate to marvel at than the stories some of us, the revenge stories for myself, that we so often tend to enjoy. So what does then Jesus call us in this text to marvel over or to marvel at? Well, I'd like to suggest that Jesus calls us first and foremost to marvel at the main actor in the history of redemption, the triune God. And specifically, three things about the triune God. The plan and patience of God, the building program of God, and the produce of God. So if you would, keep following along with me on the text. First, Jesus calls us to marvel at the plan and patience of God. Look with me specifically at the parable, traditionally known as the parable of the wicked tenants, as some of your Bibles might indicate by a section header. It's a parable that occurs in all three Gospels known as the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in slightly different forms, though complementary. Now, we'll talk about the parable itself in a moment, but for now, picture the scene with me. Jesus is in the temple, speaking specifically with the Jewish leadership of the day. He's speaking with the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, the Pharisees and the Herodians will eventually come on the scene when this question of taxes is raised to Caesar. Well, not long after the parable begins, Jesus tells them, about this evil, nasty, and vile people who possess a vineyard and repeatedly deal cruelly with a series of servants and eventually with the landowner's very own son. Now, based on Jesus' interaction with the Jewish leadership previously in Mark's gospel, and based on the three times that Jesus has already told us in Mark's gospel that he's going to go to Jerusalem where he's going to be handed over, he's going to be crucified, and on the third day he's going to rise again, We know where Jesus is going with this parable. We know that this is a parable that's drawing a parallel between the wicked tenets and Israel's leadership, both past and present. And we know that this is a cryptic foreshadowing of what will eventually take place at the end of the Passover week. But it's very likely that it takes the leadership to whom Jesus is telling this story a few moments before they really process and understand what Jesus is getting at in terms of themselves. You see, in their eyes, to hear a story about tenants, those who are presiding over a land that isn't theirs, who deal cruelly with servants, quite obviously God's servants, they're probably thinking initially about the Romans as the tenants and themselves as the persecuted people of God simply just going about God's business. After all, the Romans are the ones occupying their land, and the Romans are the ones who have dealt cruelly with God's people in their short occupation, at least in their eyes. But Jesus has a very different view on things, doesn't he? Not only does the parable itself have a different perspective on the situation, but a few verses later in verse 13, Jesus tells us he's not concerned with Caesar. He's not caught up in these fantasies of Jewish rebellion against their Roman overlords, nor is he proposing that they return to the golden age of Maccabean revolt. 
The Romans aren't off the hook in God's eyes. But Jesus is concerned with something far more important, something far more fundamental. And that is, how have the covenant people of God responded to God in the past and in the present? And what fruit have they borne in the past? And what fruit are they currently bearing in the present? Just a quick aside, when we see the vast differences between what Jesus is ultimately concerned about, the glory of God, his people, God's people bearing fruit, the fruit of faith, and so forth, and what so often consumes our hearts and minds, that should give us pause. Is Jesus the exalted cornerstone who is marvelous in our eyes, who we lean on and rest upon and trust even in the fog? Or is he another stone, the stone of offense and the rock of stumbling from Isaiah 8? This is a parable about the dynamics between God and the covenant people of God. It's not about the Romans. It's a parable that calls the leadership of the day, the average Joe Israelite, and you and I to ask ourselves whether we really marvel and trust the power and purpose of God, realize ultimately in the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, or whether we marvel instead at the illusions of power and the grandeur of power that earthly institutions falsely portray. Where do we ultimately invest our hope? In one sense, the Jewish leadership of the day is so consumed with the earthly powers that they completely miss God's purposes for his people. Is that something we might be at least functionally guilty of in our own lives? Ultimately, this parable is about Israel's covenant relationship to God climatically realized in the Son of God. And Jesus taps not only into the current state of this covenant relationship between God and his people, but the way that it's been throughout redemptive history. And God's dealing with his people since they were even formed into a people. This is exactly what Jesus is getting at in the parable when he tells us about this constant stream of servants who are sent to tenants only to be abused, beaten, and stoned. And the piece of the puzzle that almost throws the temple leadership over the edge is when Jesus tells them, almost looks them right in their face, and says that they're no different than the leaders throughout redemptive history, who should have been the exemplars in teaching the word of God and obeying the word of God. But instead, they follow the same pattern in resisting God's plan, God's purposes, and God's law. Elsewhere in Scripture, at various points in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God, at several places, prophetically calls out the leadership of the day. In whatever era of Old Testament history, almost nothing is new under the sun, God repeatedly calls out in various places the leadership for resisting the word of God as delivered from prophets, servants of God. But take one specific example in the New Testament, in Acts 7. In that text, there's a Christian named Stephen. He's seized, he's brought before the Jewish leadership to defend himself in light of a charge of blasphemy that was levied against him. And so Stephen stands up to give a defense of himself, and he basically, in his defense, gives a summary of the Old Testament, beginning all the way back with Abraham, through Jacob, and Moses, and David, highlighting the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God's true servants throughout redemptive history in the face of resistance from within the people of God. And as Stephen closes out his commentary to the leaders, what throws them over the edge to lead to his eventual stoning execution is when Stephen says this. He says in Acts 7, 51 through 53, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, who always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your father not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, 
whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's enough to get Stephen stoned very quickly following that announcement. And according to Jesus in our text, through the parable of the wicked tenants, that's the way it's always been. God sends prophets, the leader specifically, and unfaithful Israel broadly are offended by the sting of the word of God, so they lash out in anger. But at the same time, Jesus tells us essentially that there's nothing new under the sun. He gives us a much-needed perspective on both the plan of God and the character of God, especially when we may be wondering, what's God up to in all of that? Why does he continue to send this stream of servants only for them to be executed? What's God doing? Well, first, Jesus tells us that God's plan, encourages us even, that God's plan cannot be thwarted. What Israel's leadership throughout redemptive history meant for evil against God's servants, the prophets, God meant it for good. It's essentially a quote from Genesis 50, 20. And the same is true of Christ. At the end of Luke's gospel, for instance, in Luke 24, there's a scene after Jesus' death where two men are walking on this road to Emmaus, and they're absolutely discouraged about Jesus' death because they thought that this Jesus was going to be the one to redeem Israel, but now their hopes seem dashed. But Jesus meets them along the way. He meets them in in their discouragement, and he shows them from the scriptures that out of Jesus' humiliation would follow his exaltation. And isn't that exactly what we find in our text this morning? The stone that the builders rejected, the stone that the builders scorned and eschewed has become the cornerstone. Things are not what they initially appear to be. And isn't that a lesson we should all carry with us? See, we all long for justice to be done for ourselves and others. We all long for purpose. We long for human flourishing, and the list goes on and on. We're creatures who are uniquely designed for, to marvel at what is good and right But are we short-sighted? Does the faintest glimmer of suffering, for instance, lead us to believe that we must take up the gauntlet ourselves to be masters of our fate and commanders of our soul because God can't be trusted? Or do we trust that God, God is indeed working out his purposes and his plan, ultimately for his glory and our good, even when we see dimly through a fog? The story of Jesus indicates the latter. Second, Jesus accents something about the character of God that's important for all of us to take with us and to remember, and that is the patience of God. When we read this parable, especially if you're so inclined, like me, to enjoy revenge stories, we may look at the action of the landowner, who is, of course, representing God in the parable, and maybe in frustration wonder why he doesn't learn his lesson. He continues to send servants, even after they're beaten and stoned and executed, and then he sends his very own son. Isn't this the definition of insanity, trying the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results? Well, the short answer is, of course, no, because even though this parable is a snapshot of redemptive history, if we were to slowly work through the entirety of the Old Testament, we would find a fuller picture of God's interactions and dealings with his people. A God who doesn't merely let sin slide under the rug. He deals with it. And in the drama of redemption from the very beginning, he has a plan to decisively deal with sin through the seed of the woman. However, he's also a patient God who deals gently with a fickle people. Just read through Hosea if you want an indication of that. And if you've never read through Hosea, I'm going to use this as a shameless plug to pick up a Spruce Creek Bible reading plan for the new year and start your new year's right. Anyway... Leaving that aside, we see his patience and forbearance throughout Scripture. 
as we work through various texts. This is the patience each and every one of us can learn from, knowing that because we're beneficiaries of the patience of God each and every day, we have the opportunity and responsibility even to show patience to one another. Unfortunately, this is the type of patience that's often interpreted by the world or maybe even by some of us as weakness or powerlessness. But the cross upon which we rest and around which redemptive history pivots is the ultimate reconciler of God's patience and God's power, God's judgment and God's grace. Thus, to marvel at God's plan and to marvel at God's patience, look no further than Jesus Christ. Are you marveling at Jesus Christ? And are you marveling at the real Jesus of Scripture? This leads to our second point. Second, Jesus calls to marvel at the building program of God. So even as we're called to marvel first and foremost that what appeared to be defeat for Jesus and for his followers was his ultimate victory, the stone the builders rejected has indeed become the cornerstone, we're also called to marvel at something else. The vineyard is handed over to others who will ultimately form a new temple with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. With me at the text once again. As Jesus closes out this text, he quotes from a pretty important psalm, Psalm 118, verses 22 through 23, which is actually a frequently quoted and alluded psalm in the New Testament. In fact, Psalm 118 was the very psalm quoted by the crowd when Jesus rode into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. It was another verse, but it was still out of Psalm 118. But I want to focus on another New Testament passage in particular for a moment. And that is Ephesians 2, 18 through 22, which takes this metaphor of Jesus as the cornerstone of a new building from Psalm 118 and expands it to illustrate the building material of this new building program of God. Let me read for a moment from Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. For through him, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being himself being the true cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So Paul takes up this architectural metaphor, this building program of God known as the church with Jesus Christ himself as the true cornerstone who holds it all together, who makes sense of the whole thing, who supports and establishes it. And Paul essentially gives us the implications of what Jesus is saying in our text, the supernatural outworking of what it means for Jesus to be the true cornerstone. And keep in mind for a moment where Jesus is once again. He's in the temple as he teaches about himself being the cornerstone of an eschatological new temple. Thus, he's implicitly declaring the impending doom of the temple in favor of a grander new temple comprised of the people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation held together ultimately and foundationally in himself. Among other things, one of the things we should find so awesome with what Jesus says is that historically, to gaze upon the temple in first century Israel was to behold an ancient wonder. 
The first century Jewish historian Josephus in one place tells us about the Jerusalem temple in the first century and essentially tells us that if one were to look at the Jerusalem temple from afar, one would see that the upper half of it protruded into the sky and its gilded white uh, outline really reflected the sun off of it so you could see it from miles and miles away. It was apparently a beautiful sight to behold. And yet what Jesus is saying through the psalmists, and then what Paul eventually picks up on in this metaphor, is that this new temple that would be built in and around Jesus Christ was even more splendid and more marvelous than this first century ancient wonder. It's marvelous in our eyes. But again, one of the central reasons why the church, as the temple of the living God, the building program of God, is something to marvel at, and it is something to marvel at, is only because Christ is someone to marvel at. Often, in theological parlance, we talk about Christ assuming in his ministry the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. Also beautifully read today out of the confession, how what we confess when we say Christ is the king, and if we were to read on in the confession, we would, talk, we would see how the confession also asks the question, what do we mean when we say Christ is, is prophet? And what do we mean when we say Christ is priest? <clears throat> you see, Christ... In this temple episode in Mark 11, already announced through his use of Jeremiah 7 the imminent destruction of the temple. And now in our text, he's saying that this new temple would be built in and around himself. And in the Old Testament, the only one who could build the temple was a king. So Christ, through his announcement that a new temple is going to be formed, he's implicitly also declaring that he is going to be the king who builds this new temple. And then in this quotation from Psalm 118, he prophesies as a prophet what's going to take place in the rejection and humiliation of the Son of God. And then in the tearing of his own body, just like the tearing of the veil, we're going to see as we continue in Mark's gospel how Jesus is also the great high priest who gives people like you access to God, prophet, priest, and king. And friends, I hope and pray that as we go about our ministries as a church, that we would marvel in a very real sense, at this building project that Christ has built by his very own blood as prophet, priest, and king. He's taken each of us as a conglomeration of individuals with unique stories, diversity of gifts, manifold personalities, likes and dislikes, and he's formed us into a very own people for his own glory. Praise God for that. I hope that when we look around at one another, and as we labor as a church, that we would often see past one another's foibles and marvel that an unclean people like you and I have been brought together for the glory of God. And I hope that when we engage the scriptures, that we would marvel at the fact that God took a people who were not the greatest among the people, Deuteronomy 7 says, but were instead among the least and called them as his treasured possession. I hope we would marvel at the full sweep of redemptive history when we see what it looks like for God in Christ to build his church. But rather than seeing the church as an end in itself to marvel at, I hope we would first and foremost marvel at how Christ and his office of prophet, priest, and king formed us into a temple of God, among whom the glory of God dwells through his spirit. After all, isn't that a story worth marveling over? This leads us to our final point. Third, Jesus calls us to marvel at the produce of God. Look with me once again at the text, specifically now I'm focusing on the second part of the text when Jesus is now interacting with the Pharisees and the Herodians. When they come on the scene, 
they immediately present Jesus with a question, a politically loaded question at that. Should one pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this question actually reveals quite a bit about the Pharisees and Herodians. And let me explain it like this. Have you ever been in a conversation with a you know, family member, a friend, an acquaintance, coworker, whoever it may be, where out of the blue, your friend or conversation partner suddenly turns the conversation in a way to start talking about themselves or something that they're really interested in? I think we've all probably been in that position before where we're talking about the weather and then somehow before we know it, our conversation partner suddenly or suddenly moves the conversation to talk about themselves. Well, we can laugh at that. I think we've all experienced that before. That reveals that what our conversation partner, for better or for worse, really cares about isn't the weather. It's about themselves or something they actually care about. And the weather is simply the means to conceal that desire and to enter in. Well, this is similar to what's going on here. The Pharisees and the Herodians begin by heaping compliment after compliment on Jesus, almost as if we want to talk about you right now, Jesus, and how fabulous and wonderful you are. You don't care about anyone's opinions, and and you're not swayed by appearances. You truly teach the word of God. Now, to be sure, the compliments are thinly veiled attempts for Jesus to let his guard down, but they're mostly true in what they affirm. Nonetheless, the Pharisees show their true colors when they then shift the question, and they asked him, so in light of that, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? This is a question that had immense contemporary baggage, but it also had historical baggage. You see, back in AD 6, about 24 years prior to this conversation under uh, Quinarius, <clears throat> there was something called a poll tax, a property tax of sorts that was imposed throughout Judea. Now, the imposition of this tax was so infuriating to the people that it led to a revolt by a guy named Judas of Galilee, who Josephus tells us about. And according to Josephus, Judas the Galilean thought that to pay this tax was ultimately to transfer one's ultimate allegiance from God himself to Rome. And he called his fellow countrymen cowards for our green to pay this tax. Eventually, this even led to an uprising among the Jewish people or a portion of the Jewish people that was quickly stifled out by the Romans. But as you can imagine, the sensitivity of the issue was very much still in the air when the Pharisees and Herodians asked Jesus this politically loaded question. So the Pharisees and Herodians asked this question to trap Jesus. But underneath the hood, they also asked this question because it's an issue that they've probably, like everybody else in the area, have stewed over for years. But how does Jesus respond? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In other words, why are you so consumed with this issue of taxes? You've invested so much emotional capital into this issue, and what you've neglected in the process is bearing fruit for God. Render to God what is his. That's effectively what Jesus is saying in his response. And that should lead us to ask this question. What are we rendering to God? In other words, what about our lives or the world consumes us so much that we fail to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Obviously, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about anything else in the world, but are there things that we so obsess over as people that we have failed to produce fruit for God? It seems that this was one of the central issues with the Pharisees and the Herodians. 
They marvel more about the golden age of Jewish independence than about actually living their lives on the ground level, glorifying God in Christ. So that's something we're guilty of. So friends, what do you marvel over? What stories occupy your imaginative faculties? This text invites us, I think, pretty clearly to marvel at a much better story, one that's truer to reality, one that has eternal significance. It's the story of God's victory in Christ. Is that the story that you're marveling over? Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a better word in the gospel, a better story in the history of redemption, something to marvel over than we typically marvel over. And we confess that we typically marvel or are consumed with so many other things. Other things so often occupy us and are so often the things under the hood forming us as people. But Lord, we pray that we would use this as an opportunity, especially going into this new year, to engage with you more on a daily basis, to be formed more by the things of God than by the things of this world. We ask, Lord, that you would shape us in Christ, continue to shape us in Christ. And if, if people are here today who don't know God in Christ, who've never confessed Jesus as Lord, would this be the day of their salvation too, going into the new year, so that God in Christ would be the one forming them too into the people of God. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.